Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1698 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined via Skype by Dr. Hyungkook Lee. Dr. Lee is a senior lecturer in music technology and production, as well as the founder and leader of the Applied Psychoacoustics Lab Research Group at the University of Huddersfield. The APL is a research group dedicated to the mechanism of human auditory perception and developing new audio algorithms for practical applications. Dr. Lee has developed research in the area of 3D audio psychoacoustics and undergraduate modules such as acoustic and concert hall recording techniques. Today, Dr. Lee speaks about his research and experiments in 3D sound, how different variables affect the human perception of sound, the prevalence of ambisonics, and the potential use and impact of scientific research in terms of eventual real-world application. Dr. Hyunkook Lee, hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. No, it's an absolute pleasure. So are you calling in from Huddersfield? Yes. Are you a football fan? Oh yeah, of course I am. <laughs> I assume you support Huddersfield. Yes, I do. Uh, it was very disappointing to see uh, Huddersfield losing some games recently. Uh, <laughs> but I also uh, support Tottenham as well. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it was like either way for you. Um, yeah. I'm actually a Tottenham fan myself. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm so glad that Min Son is doing so well these days. Uh, Scored two goals against Huddersfield. That was a great game. Yeah. Did you go to see the game? No, no, I was just uh, seeing the news. Okay. There's quite a few really interesting games lined up for Tottenham and two this week. So, really looking forward to it. Yeah. Tottenham's doing really well these days. Absolutely smashing it. FA Cup, Premier League, Champions League, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Enough about football. Let's start talking about yourself. And I'm very curious to hear more information about the early stage of your career. You have had some interesting twists and turns in your career. How did it all start for you? I was always interested in recording, sound and music when I was growing up. I was starting as a recording engineer in 1996. I was working as an assistant engineer in a studio in Seoul, Korea, where I'm from. I wanted to study sound recording properly, so I came to the UK and uh, studied at the Tonmeister course at uh, Surrey University. I spent my year out at Metropolis Studios in 2001. I never thought of being a researcher until I came back to the uni for final year. I decided to do a PhD in um, sound recording and psychoacoustics. And yeah, that's how it all started. When did you decide that you would like to move to the UK to pursue your audio career? It was actually 1996. As I was working at the studio, I had the hunger, you know, to study sound and audio properly. I was basically looking for a good university to go and study. And I was told that Tonmeister course at Surrey was the best course. So I applied for the course in 1996, um, but I didn't get accepted. So I had to prepare for music, my English and you know, some other things. So I had an interview again and I got accepted in 1998. So that's when I came to the UK properly. 
You've had a varied career and you seem to be drawn to research and development. Had it always been your intention and a passion? And how did you decide to get into academia and research in general? I never thought me as a researcher until I came back to Surrey after my placement year at Metropolis. I really didn't know what research was about, but uh, I started doing my final year project on uh, surround sound mic techniques and uh, and psychoacoustics as well. And then I became more and more interested in, in research in general, it kind of opened my eyes to a wider world. I always thought about being a recording engineer, mixing engineer. I mean, it's still my passion and still what I'm doing, but I wanted to pursue a um, research career. One of the reasons was because I was interested in education, you know, and to become a lecturer at uni, you'd need a PhD these days. It was a big decision for me, actually, to start PhD. But I was fortunate to have uh, Francis Romsey as my supervisor, and he influenced me a lot in my research career as well. After my PhD, I wanted to experience real world in audio R&D. So that's why I went to work for LG in Korea. It was a bit of a twist, <laughs> but I'm glad that I chose that uh, route. So you worked in LG and contributed to MPEG audio standardization. Are these two threads connected? Can you tell us a bit more about your role um, at LG? I was working on two projects in parallel. One was MPEG audio standardization, and the other was developing audio algorithms for LG mobile phones. So obviously at the time when I was there, there was no smartphones or anything like that. So complexity was a big thing. <laughs> so uh, basically my job was developing new spatial audio processing algorithms, like a banner audio for mobile phones. So I was working on sound design, tuning the algorithm, and also like reducing complexity for the algorithm. That was one part. And uh, the MPEG audio activity was basically uh, I would uh, attend standardization meetings every three months happening all around the world. And so I travel to different countries, attend standardization meetings, represent LG and propose a new technology we developed to uh, accept it in a standard like USAC, uh, Universal Speech and Audio Codec, and SAOC, Spatial Audio Object Codec, uh, and things like that. Yeah, the standardization activity is a very tough competition. There was a company like Fraunhofer who, who developed MP3. It's the biggest proponent at MPEG. So it was very challenging to uh, represent LG and then you know, because LG was kind of a late starter and I had to still kind of fight for the company in a way and represent the technology we worked on. But it was very good experience for me. You know, it was definitely, you know, eye-widening experience. I got to meet those great people from front of uh, Dolby and other companies. Then after four and a half years, I wanted to come back to the academia. I was fortunate enough to get a job at Huddersfield and yeah, came back to the UK eventually. So I'm curious to hear what do you do differently at the University of Huddersfield compared to the other audio educational establishments in the UK and in the world? It's actually apparently one of the largest music tech educational institutes in the UK. We have several unique modules and unique ways of um, teaching sound recording and audio engineering. For example, the consultor recording module I wrote when I started in 2010, it's a really good example of combining theory and practice. This module is focused on stereo microphone techniques, and we teach all the background psychoacoustics for um, different stereo uh, recording techniques. 
So this is not just to show people like so-called precept techniques like X, Y, and A, B. But this module is really about helping students to um, design their own microphone techniques based on psychoacoustics. We have a lecture and a workshop. After each lecture, students attend this Friday recording workshop at a really beautiful consult hall we have called St. Paul's. So uh, it's an hour and a half session. Uh, students come as a group and they get to practice what they learned from the lecture. For example, they learned about uh, coinstone technique and all the psychoacoustic principles behind XY coinstone technique. And we set up a virtual string quartet. So four speakers set in a, a string quartet layout and uh, students get to practice different microphone spacing, different microphone angle, different microphone height and different distance between the speaker, uh, the sound source and the microphone. And with the string quartet, the virtual string quartet playing the identical performance for every take. The students can compare um, the recordings they made basically uh, simultaneously so they can actually hear what kind of differences they can hear with different microphone spacing and angles and at different distances. This way students really they hands on the techniques they learn from the lecture and they experience the real benefit and disadvantage of each technique. We spend a lot of time on critical listening so they listen back to the recordings they made and we have open discussion about the sound quality aspects and then we discuss how to improve uh, each recording. That's, that's one example uh, of our unique teaching method. But we also teach lots of various different uh, programming languages as well as this kind of uh, practical recording techniques. So students would study C++ programming for plugin design and so on. So our course uh, is a really good balance between um, technical stuff and uh, practical stuff. And as an entry requirement, do you expect students to have some kind of level of experience or background in a computer science coding experience or people literally can start from scratch? Yeah, people can actually start from scratch. Most people start from scratch in terms of uh, programming. Of course, having technical background helps, but we don't necessarily require them to study computing science, uh, mathematics or physics. Um, lots of our students actually do come with some mathematical background in GCSE, but we don't require A-level mathematics. Yeah, but most people actually cope very well with um, these kind of technical modules when they come on to first-year audio systems course. I mean, we do offer different uh, music tech courses like popular music production courses. For this technical course like audio systems, we expect students to have a technical mindset and willingness to learn challenging modules like programming. If they don't find it's the right fit for them, they can always transfer to more practical um, course like popular music production. So various options. You personally also have experience and background in acoustic music recording and mixing. But I'm curious to hear, what was your very first immersive audio experience and how did that spark your further interest in spatial audio research? First surround sound experience was at Aspen Music Festival in America in 1999. I was always fascinated with stereo recording and how to create this, you know, being there illusion in, in recordings and stuff. I went to Aspen in Colorado. Uh, there's a big music festival called Aspen Music Festival. And this festival runs audio course during the three-month festival. So I went there actually twice. First year I went there as a student and second year I went there as an intern engineer. 
and they were the audio institute. They were to record every concert happening during the festival. I uh, got involved in a lot of the sessions and they were experimenting with surround recording at the time. Of course, at the time, the 5.1 was rising and there were a lot of uh, different techniques people were proposing. So it was a really great experience and opportunity for me to experiment with different surround techniques. That was the first experience. And when I came back to the university for final year, I did my uh, final year project on uh, surround sound microphone techniques. That's what, that was my first uh, experience in immersive audio, I guess. In 2014, you established the APL, a research group studying the mechanism of human auditory perception and developing new audio algorithms for practical applications. Could you discuss some of the projects that you've been working on as part of this research group? Basically, our vision is to link between theory and practice. We identify research gaps and what kind of things that we need to know theoretically to develop new applications in audio. We've been recently, well, for the last three, four years, we've been focusing on 3D sound acoustics, uh, psychoacoustics, and recording techniques, mixing techniques, and unmixing techniques. So we've worked a lot on perception of height in 3D sound reproduction. So we were identifying what kind of physical parameters are actually relevant to perception of height in 3D sound reproduction. We also worked on banner audio for VR. We first focused on the fundamental side. So we do lots of listening tests to find out how humans perceive sound in different conditions and try to identify what kind of method works and what kind of method doesn't work. And then we also developed various types of recording techniques. We developed a microphone technique for 3D sound recording. Actually, the result of this research project, we worked on about optimal microphone configuration for 3D sound reproduction. This was adapted uh, by Sherps, a renowned microphone company in Germany, on their product called OLTF3D which actually recently won a tech award at NAM. WALTF3D basically exploits the research finding from our study about the effect of microphone spacing in the vertical plane. We also worked on the microphone technique for 360 VR. We are working a lot on VR these days, especially with auditory visual interaction in mind. Actually, that brings us nicely to some of the questions I wanted to talk about. Another topic I wanted to touch on is one of your research papers, How Do We Perceive Sounds in Vertical Stereophony? From your perceptual signal processing for 3D sound recording research in 2016, I believe, since absolute majority of immersive audio content is produced and consumed on headphones, what steps the industry should be taking to start improving their elevation? Can we find a solution in software and new HRTF algorithms? Or the answer is in hardware manufacturing that takes into consideration human anatomy, for example, things like ear pinai. Yeah, there are various research projects going on in this aspect. I mean, well, people traditionally focused on PINA uh, Q. There's lots of research already existing in how to model PINA Q. So how to create HLTF, uh, how to kind of model HLTF without actually measuring the uh, HLTF with human ears. But from our research, we found that a lot of our elevation perception is not just about PINA Q. PNRQ is typically related to high frequencies above 3K. 
you know, because of the complex shape of the pinna. But it's also related to lower frequency cues and also a lot of psychostatic uh, perceptual cues. So one example is a famous theory by Blauert. It's called directional bands or directional boost. So this theory basically suggests that if you have certain uh, frequencies um, boosted compared to other frequency regions, you would have really strong uh, above perception. Uh, for example, if you have more 8 kilohertz energy than 1K or 4K, then you would have sound appearing above you. And if you have more 1 kilohertz energy than other frequencies, then you would perceive it from behind, for example. But this is regardless of actual physical speaker position. It's just purely about the spectral balance of ear input signal. And also another evidence that HRTF is not the only cue for elevation perception is our recent research on phantom image elevation effect. And this effect uh, is a very interesting one. Anyone can actually experiment um, this. Usually we have speakers in front of us at 60 degrees angle as a standard setup. I don't know if you have experienced this yourself, but sometimes we hear a vocal or snare drum or the centrally panned sound sources slightly elevated, perceived higher than the actual speaker height. If you close your eyes and don't look at the speakers, then you perceive the vocal slightly elevated to about 15 degrees, 20 degrees. This effect becomes stronger and stronger if you increase the loudspeaker bass angle. For example, if you place two loudspeakers at your side, so minus 90 degrees and 90 degrees, and if you are sitting right in between the two speakers, then you will perceive the phantom image right above you. That's actually a phenomenon known from like 1940s. Well, I recently did some really extensive experiment on this and also provided some theoretical explanation why this happens. To explain it very briefly, this perception, this elevation perception is not just about high frequency HLTF. It's about frequent spectral notch occurring around uh, 600 hertz due to the uh, intoral crosstalk. So the sound comes from both loudspeakers arriving at two years at the same time. Then you have the crosstalk element as well, just passing around the head and then arriving at the contralateral ear. When these two signals, ipsilateral uh, signal and contralateral signal, are combined together, then they cause comfort effect, which produces a spectral notch in the frequency domain. The first notch frequency is around 600 hertz. This particular frequency is exactly the same frequency as what happens when the sound source is elevated right above you physically. So if you have a real source right above you, this source will cause a shoulder reflection. So the sound will arrive at your ear first and then reflect it off the shoulder arrive at the year later. So when these two components are combined, um, then the notch will be around 600 hertz. So it's exactly the same situation when you have two speakers at the horizontal plane at your ear height, the same notch frequency occurs at around 600 hertz. So our elevation perception is, it cannot be answered really simply actually. A lot of people just focus on HLTF, but um, there are lots of cognitive aspects involved as well, and also expectation and experience, things like that. So I believe the brain interprets the crosstalk 
signals from the two speakers at ear height as shoulder reflection for a real source elevated right above you physically. At higher frequencies, it could be related to the spectral balance as per directional bands. So if you have more of 8 kilohertz energy than uh, 4 kilohertz or 1 kilohertz, then yeah, the sound would be naturally elevated, perceived as elevated at a higher position. But the lower frequency or mid-low frequency elements around 600 hertz are equally important for the perception of this phantom elevation effect. So based on this, we actually developed a new panning method called VHOP. <laughs> it's kind of a twist of VBOP, which is a popular panning method for 3D sound. But VHOP stands for Virtual Hemispherical Amplitude Panning. This method allows you to create virtually elevated sound image without using actual height speakers or elevated speakers. So you just four horizontal level speakers and exploiting this phantom image elevation effect by doing some kind of constant power panning between four speakers. For example, you can elevate the sound image at 30 degree azimuth at 30 degree elevation without using the actual speaker at 30 degree elevation. We can do many creative things uh, using psychoacoustic phenomena like this. That's actually what uh, my lab's doing, connecting between psychoacoustics and engineering. That's our main activity. How do you see this type of research being applied in software, which is currently used to produce content? So based on my experience, the synthetic representation of elevation is uh, quite a challenging task and often just does not render the required results. I'm really curious to hear whether the theory found among these experiments with the physical transducers can be applied into decoding algorithms and playbacks. Yes, of course. Using psychoacoustic uh, principles, we can render 3D sound much more effectively if we truly understand how to use, for example, high channel speakers. The fact that we add more speakers in the vertical positions don't really mean that we would localize sounds from that position. It really depends on the frequency content and other things. So, for example, if you play low frequency tones or low pass filtered sounds from highly elevated speakers, we would still localize it from ear height or even lower than ear height. So in, in that sense, sometimes there's no point of panning any uh, low frequency heavy sound to elevated speakers. One of the examples of using psychoacoustic principle for 3D sound system is a method called PBA, which I suggested. Uh, for 3D sound on mixing. Usually for 5.1 or horizontal surround systems, we use decorrelation of signals to enhance spatial impression. So the more different two signals are, the more spaciousness or width we perceive in horizontal sense. But in terms of vertical stereo, we don't have ears vertically arranged. Our ears are horizontally arranged. So the same principle of decorrelation or interaural cross-correlation, as we say, it doesn't apply directly to vertical stereo. Even if the two signals are more decorrelated, it doesn't necessarily mean that we would perceive more spread in the vertical stereo. Again, the key thing is the frequency content because this phenomenon called pitch height effect or Pratt's effect, it suggests that higher frequencies tend to be localized higher, lower frequencies tend to be localized lower, regardless of the actual speaker height. So if we use this principle to create different degrees of spread over vertically arranged speakers, 
we could possibly control the amount of spatial impression we perceive vertically. So this is basically the main idea behind this unmixing method called PBA. I've conducted listening tests to find out where each frequency band is perceived when it's presented from either height speaker or main speaker or other speaker positions. And based on the results, the method basically scatters different frequency content to different speaker positions to create different degrees of spread over uh, vertically arranged speakers. And this way we can create much more natural 3D sound impression because when we apply decorrelation or phase-related processing techniques between vertically arranged speakers. One of the problems is we can actually have um, quite negative coloration because when the signals are arriving at the ear with different phase relationship, um, they can cancel each other and the original spectrum of the signal can be distorted. But with the PBA method or uh, this kind of general frequency uh, allocation approach, we don't have to worry about phase cancellation or spectral distortion because each speaker reproduces each frequency component, for example. So when they arrive at the ear, they all be reconstructed without any overlapping between frequency content. So this way we can ensure that the spatial impression and also um, tonal coloration, they are in an optimal condition. I'm also curious to hear more about your work on the capturing and rendering 360 VR audio using cardioid microphones. A lot of engineers still trying to get their head around about uh, what are the best methods for capturing audio for VR. What's your take on the whole thing here? Ambisonics basically has uh, its golden age at the moment. <laughs> Ambisonics has been around for many, many years. But lots of engineers, especially uh, classical recording engineers or broadcasting engineers, they don't tend to like uh, Ambisonics because it has various known issues, like a uh, very narrow sweet spot. So as you move your head, and if you're sitting in a non-sweet spot, then it sounds quite phasey. And it's got constant technique in the end. So it sounds less spacious than widely spaced microphone techniques like Decca Tree. Professional engineers tend to prefer near constant technique or widely spaced techniques for sound quality purpose. Well, ambisonics in VR, because in VR you are always sitting in the sweet spot, so you don't have to worry about the listening position issues or phase issue. But still, compared to widely spaced array, ambisonic sounds not spacious enough. Although the localization accuracy is really good, it's a very good technique for pinpointing each sound source position in reproduction. But in general, it doesn't offer very good spaciousness. And also, if you want to reproduce the recording over speakers, then, as I said, we have this sweet spot issue. Do you think utilizing higher order sound capture methods, including things like EigenMic and I'm sure there are other products um, that exist on the market or will be emerging soon, do you think that would remove some of the issues that ambisonics currently face? Minus disadvantages, reproducing ambisonic signal through array of loudspeakers. But if we just stick to the usual kind of methods of consumption of VR content, which is usually headphones. Yeah, higher order ambisonics. It's definitely better than first order. I mean, even third order ambisonics can sound much better than first order in terms of spatial resolution. The sense of directionality and spatial impression is a lot better than first order ambisonics, especially 3D sound codec like MPEG-H. The delivery of high order ambisonic signals became much easier now. 
I definitely believe that you can offer many things um, for content creation and broadcasting of 3D audio and things like that. But I think it depends on the application, really. There are areas where high order ambisonics can be really useful, but in some other areas, first order ambisonics can be maybe good enough. It really depends on what kind of acoustic signals you're dealing with. I think um, high order ambisonics can be really useful when you have like a sound sources placed around you. So you have sound sources above you, behind you, and you know, for example, if you're surrounded by many different sound objects then the higher directionality of higher ambisonics can offer great advantage over first order ambisonics. But in a like a reverberant environment where the directionality doesn't really matter much. For example, if you have sound sources in the front of the stage and the rest of the space is just filled with reverb, the advantage of higher ambisonics could be not as great as you'd expect. So it depends on the acoustics of the space you're recording and the scenario of your recording. Coming back to the previous question, so using four cardioid microphones, I came up with this idea, okay, so if we have four favorite cardioid microphones, like a lot of professional engineers do in professional sessions, they don't tend to use constant arrays, like first order ambisonics. They like to space apart microphones to capture better spaciousness. I modified this array design concept called equal segment microphone array, which was originally proposed by Michael Williams in the 80s for quadraphonic speaker reproduction. After doing some research, I modified the spacing between microphones from 25 centimeters to 50 centimeters. That was because I found some discrepancy between the theory and practical perception from our listening test. And so I basically found that 25 centimeters is not ideal for quadraphonic speaker reproduction. Based on some psychoacoustic model I developed, turned out to be 50 centimeters being optimal distance between microphones. So we did some testing with this array, ESMA, and compared it against first-order ambisonic. And we found that, yeah, as expected, this more spaced microphone array, ESMA, can offer um, a lot better like overall width perception, wider perception in a reverberant consultal uh, environment. And also you can add some kind of depth to the recording. And you can use this array for 360 head tracking based scenarios. So if you update HLTF for each relative speaker positions as you rotate the sound field, you can still achieve the same effect as ambisonics. Of course, ambisonics rotate the sound field instead of HLTF, so it can be more efficient. But these days, there's enough uh, computational power that can handle HLTF uh, update for each head rotation positions. So in general, there are many different options. Ambisonic is definitely a very good method. If you want to go out and record some environmental sound, then yeah, Ambisonic is a very convenient way of uh, doing recording. It's one point, it's easy to carry, but the trade-off would be the spaciousness of the recording and the narrow sweet spot in speaker reproduction. But a large array like ESMA can offer you better sweet spot, I mean, widened sweet spot. Also, you can choose different microphones. So there are more options. You can have different tonal characteristics for different recordings. So it depends on the application again. If it is like for professional recording or broadcasting, 
sweet spot might be an um, important issue, and the toner quality also it could be an in- important issue. Higher than Bisonics or first of the Ambisonics, they offer very good directionality, convenience, and compactness. But the toner quality is sometimes compromised because of the use of many capsules, especially for higher than Bisonics. It uses you know 32 capsules that has to compromise the tonal quality. Ambisonic is not the only option. Well, there are pros and cons in different techniques. That's a very insightful comparison. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will really appreciate the level of detail that has been provided here. And um, it's good to know that there are a lot of options out there that people can experiment and work with. Of course, as you suggested, every method, every approach has its own advantages and disadvantages, and that actually worry quite a lot. You know, not everything is suitable for outdoor sound capture, especially when you have to be portable, efficient. But ultimately, you know, there are options that can offer you significantly different audio, tonal, and reproduction results if you consider using it within indoor controlled environment, for example. I also wanted to ask you about your research with Stephen Fenton on alternative weighting filters for multi-track program loudness measurement. Obviously, we already touched on um, lack of standards within immersive media industry at the moment, which concerns all kinds of things. But talking about loudness, to me, it seems like the industry in general, despite releasing so many standards recently in Europe and across the globe, still hasn't really got their head around it. And because we have so many different types of media and content consumption methods, you know, portable devices, smartphones, computers, TVs, cinema, VR, and so on and so forth, the question of loudness standards still seems to be very relevant. And I'm curious to hear what were your key findings or conclusions based on this research paper with regards to immersive media loudness standards? Mm. This study is still ongoing. Actually, it was uh, our first paper we published. But we are planning to expand this for various loudspeaker positions in immersive audio systems, for example, um, 9.1 or 22.2. The loudness curve that is standardized in NBS 1770, uh, ITR BS 1770, it's mainly based on speech signal. And the curve that we applied for loudness normalization so basically, LUF has loudness normalization. We applied it to various different sound sources and didn't always manage to match the loudness successfully. That was the motivation behind this project. But more interestingly, there is no standard for loudness normalization for different speaker positions. So most of the existing standards based on the speaker placed in front of the listener but in immersive audio systems, we have speakers behind us, above us, and different positions. As you know, um, HRTF for different speaker positions all different. So we can safely hypothesize that the equal loudness contour, so to speak, loudness perception depend on tone frequency would be also different for different speaker positions. So that's the aim of this project. We are working towards it. So more results will come in the future. Our aim is to provide database for the loudness, uh, equal loudness curve for different speaker positions in immersive audio system. That's very interesting. I would love to talk more about this topic once more research has been published. Yeah. Okay, moving on now. You are the leader of the Applied Psychoacoustics Lab at University of Huddersfield. What kind of stuff do you get to up to and does it feed back to undergraduate or postgraduate curriculum at all? 
Yeah, APL, we currently have five PhD students and two MSc students uh, working in the field of psychoacoustics and 3D audio. It's mainly a um, postgraduate uh, research lab, but we invite our second year audio system students or final year students to our listening test. So we provide opportunity for them to participate in our research and they are constantly trained in a critical listening environment. They get used to um, like um, listening to different types of sounds, stimuli in a you know, controlled way, in a critical way, and then grade um, the perceived qualities of each stimulus in a controlled environment. So, yeah, I believe this becomes a really good training for them, especially when they go out in the placement year. Yeah, every year we do have uh, two or three students going to front of a uh, work in 3D sound and binaural audio. This experience they have in their second year is very invaluable in a way. So I do believe that the things that we do uh, at APL fit very well to our undergraduate students as well. Basically, they experience this research uh, in undergraduate days. And then when they come back to final year, they do their final project in a related subject in psychoacoustics and 3D sound. And a lot of them actually move on to postgraduate Huddersfield or somewhere else. I think uh, yeah, it's working quite well. You're offering a number of PhD and master's positions. What qualities do you find that students need to excel in these positions? Well, for me, more than anything else, they should have genuine passion for research, the eager to know more. I think for me, that's the most important thing. And because it's very different from undergraduate, you know, in undergraduate, you're given assignments and you're handing assignments and uh, sometimes you're spoon fed and you're taught what to do. But postgraduate, PhD, master's, you have to be very proactive in finding research gaps, research questions, and designing experiments, and so on. So all these, you can't do it without passion and also the eager for knowledge. There's a whole point of doing this postgraduate research is not just a subject, but it's developing the discipline to be an independent researcher in the end. It requires really good self-discipline and self-motivation but without the right type of attitude, you know, passion, it's quite difficult to go on for three, four years of PhD because it's a long way. It's a very lonely kind of place sometimes. But if you have enough passion and the willingness to go through all the difficulties, then you can learn all the necessary skill sets like programming language and, you know, listening test designs, statistical analysis techniques, and all this will naturally follow because you, you put enough time and effort into it, because you are passionate about what you do, because you're interested in what you do, and you want to contribute to knowledge. <laughs> I think that, for me, is the most important thing. It's an excellent segue to my next question. What do you think are the most important things to consider for young students who are preparing to pursue a research project? Sometimes students or even professional researchers, they do research, but they don't really know, they don't realize what the real value of the project is. <laughs> it sounds ironic, but it happened time to time. Because if you don't realize the real value of your research, why you, you're doing this research, to whom it would be beneficial to eventually, and in what ways, you know, these kind of questions, you, you always have to be clear about the value of your own research. 
Because sometimes you can underestimate what you do, but you could actually turn it into a groundbreaking research or world-first research. You don't realize that <laughs> until you actually spend a lot more time to, to find it out. My recommendation is to try to relate it to real-world application. Then you can actually clearly see, okay, so if I do research, this will help people achieve certain things in a better way, blah, blah, blah. You know, without actually seeing how your research is used in the end, it could be quite boring. And also sometimes when you're stuck in a difficult moment, you might just give up because you don't really see the value of it. But if you actually know clearly how your research can contribute to the world, how the world can change because of your research, then even if you're contributing to the solution of the problem by like 0.0001%, it is still a really valuable um, thing to do because you know, you're contributing to the 100% of the thing. So for me, the self-motivation and realizing the value of your own research and putting meaning to it is a very important thing for students. Talking about real-world applications, I want to ask you, can you predict any upcoming advances in 3D audio, psychoacoustic, sound recording techniques, whatever, whatever is emerging from the dark pockets of the research world and academia that you think is going to be adopted by the industry in the coming years? In terms of research, I believe, especially with the rise of VR, augmented reality, mixed reality, important thing to research on in audio is multimodal perception. So for example, auditory visual interaction is a really important topic for research these days. Usually audio research is done in a controlled environment. So you want to remove some uncontrolled variables focused on the variable on the test. So usually in listening tests and audio evaluation, Visual cues are hidden, basically, so you put curtain in front of speakers so you don't get biased by the visual cues and so on. Of course, this is important when you're doing controlled research, but in real life, unless you're blind, it's a very unnatural thing to evaluate sound without visual cues because we're always exposed to visual cues. When you listen to music, you have speakers in front of you and you're in a certain room. The interior and the size of the room might affect you for example, if you go to a concert hall, you're not just listening to the ensemble, the musicians, you're actually in the space. The whole thing is what makes you perceive the sound in certain ways. So the visuals affect audio, but also audio can affect visual perception as well. So this kind of multimodal perception is especially important in VR because you're supposed to have the visual cues together with auditory cues. So I think this is a very important future research direction and also it's one of the areas we are focusing on for our future research. Actually, that's quite refreshing to hear the new perspective because usually we tend to talk about audio in isolation. I can't agree more because it's a cross-modal phenomenon and we can talk about body cognition and all kinds of things. We perceive world through and makes sense out of world through multisensory processes. And I guess whilst it does make sense to talk about audio in isolation in a lot of contexts that industry has been involved with, you know, like, for example, music recording and reproduction and whatnot. But as we're moving on into things like VR, which is very much about replicating the real world or creating new worlds with a degree of authenticity that can match the real world, 
inevitably we're going to have to resort to research which does take into consideration all aspects of this complex multi-sensory process which is which is our world perception essentially that engages everything yeah I, I totally agree with what you said visual interaction or cross-modal interaction is very important in technology development as well in terms of quality of experience people usually say that visual cues dominate the auditory cues so even if the auditory audio quality is low if the visual quality is good then people satisfaction level would still be high. But this kind of thing has never been tested in a formal way in, in audio evaluation sense because audio has been always tested in isolation. So small differences that you can perceive in audio-only evaluation might not be perceivable in auditory visual evaluation, for example. That would be more realistic in a way, more applicable in a VR environment or you know in real life environment. So I'd like to see more research done in a multimodal context to have more realistic and applicable result. I also think the VR is a blessing to researchers because we can simulate things very easily to evaluate the effect of visual cues on auditory perception and vice versa. We can do that really quickly in VR using uh, head mount displays and binaural audio, you know, it's quite difficult to conduct research, I guess, simultaneously switching between different auditory cues and visual cues in real life. But in VR, things can be done in a very efficient and effective ways. So yeah, VR is a very great way to do research in multimodal perception. Fantastic. So good news. We're moving on to final questions. Thank you for staying with me. I really enjoyed the answers so far. And my next question is what I, I tend to ask pretty much every guest on this podcast, which is which project that you've been involved with you're most proud of and why? Okay. <laughs> if I maybe just give two examples. The first one is the project on 3D microphone array design. I think I mentioned earlier the result of this project was adapted by Sherps for a commercial product called OLTF 3D. This paper we published in 2014. It was the first paper that evaluated the effect of different height of height microphones in 3D microphone arrays. I believe that it provided um, quite insightful finding that has an implication for microphone array design. So usually, horizontally, we know that the more spacing you apply between microphones, then you would have uh, more decorrelation between signals, thus producing greater spaciousness, for example. But we found for the first time it doesn't happen vertically. So even if you place a height microphone in a higher position, it doesn't actually contribute much to the perception of overall spatial impression. Um, the main reason is because our ears are not uh, vertically spaced, it's horizontally spaced. So there are a lot of other psychoacoustical factors involved in, in this, but basically we found this result that has a really uh, useful implication for microphone array design. So you don't have to place microphones really high, but you can just uh, place the microphone right next to the main microphones, but facing upwards. So here the most important thing is to have enough level difference between the main microphone and the height microphone to avoid the whole image shifting upwards. So for example, if the height microphone has too much direct sound record in the signal, then you'd have this sound image shifting upwards. So when you listen to it in 3D sound system, for example, orchestra might be appearing a lot higher than what it would be in the real life. So the height speakers might have too much dominance. 
the reduction of this kind of crosstalk or unnecessary direct sound in high channels is very important. So that's actually a, another research finding from our project. Uh, you need about 7 to 8 dB reduction of direct sound in the high channel signals to avoid any undesired image shift in the recording. This microphone array we proposed called PCMA 3D, it uses these two findings from our previous research. So the height microphone should be angled so that you achieve at least 7 dB, 8 dB reduction of direct sound. And also the, the height of the microphone doesn't have to be great. It can be configured so vertically constant but horizontally spaced. That's the concept of the microphone array design we proposed. And it was really great to see shops adopting this for their products. The other project is the phantom image elevation effect I explained briefly. This phenomenon was first found in 1940s, but the real reason why this effect was perceived was not actually explained clearly, other than the HLTF-based theory by Blauert. But I provided new insight into why this phantom elevation effect occurs. As I explained, it's about the crosstalk delay, crosstalk-related spectral notch being interpreted by the brain as a, as a real source um, shoulder reflection delay. This hypothesis has been verified from some binaural experiment. So, yeah, I'm quite proud of these two projects. And, <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to choose just two, but, yeah, if I had to. I, I can imagine you've worked on such large amount of research projects that I'm surprised you only mentioned two, but the ones you mentioned uh, certainly offer a huge amount of value for the community who use this technology in everyday work. Thank you. My last question is, what piece of advice would you give to someone who wants to enter the industry today? I would recommend people who are in entering the industry. Um, the first thing they should find out is what they really like to do and what they're good at, instead of what other people are actually doing and what the trend is like. Um, so don't try to follow the trend. For example, if okay, machine learning, AI is rising these days, so that doesn't mean that you, you also have to do it. <laughs> yeah, don't follow what other people are doing, but try to find out what you really like to do and what you're really passionate about and what you're good at and then work with your own strengths and try to also find the unique aspect of yourself, what you are unique about, what you can do and what other people can't do. And then eventually it all comes down to teamwork, isn't it? You know, in audio, in the studio environment or in research, we work as a team and you do things more effectively and efficiently. So if everybody's doing the same job, if, well, you know, that doesn't really add anything. So if, for example, if everyone is a great programmer, but nobody provides a fundamental algorithm, then there's nothing to program about and vice versa. If you have great ideas and you want to do something new, but you can't implement things within your group, then it's also another thing. So the industry needs people from different backgrounds, different disciplines, and you know, eventually we're all working together to do some interesting stuff and uh, achieve you know, progress in, in audio technology. So I would say be a good team member, good team player, and if you're a good team member, if you're a good follower, and, and there's a better chance that you become a good leader as well in the end, because you understand how to work as a team and then you can lead a team yourself. I think this you know, should apply to any other discipline than audio as well. But 
I, I would say yes. Try to be yourself and uh, try to find your own strength, you know, talent, and use it maximally. <laughs> yeah. I'll dare to predict that some of our listeners have been fascinated by the research you've been sharing with us today, and will probably try to find out more or try to stay in touch and follow your new research. What would be the best way to stay in touch and keep an eye on new things and findings that are coming out from APL and University of Huddersfield from you personally? Yeah, we have um, a university official website, www.hud.hc.uk slash APL. So you can follow our update, uh, publications and activities there. We also have Facebook group. So if you search Applied Psychoacoustics Lab on Facebook, then you can be also updated with our recent activities. And probably the easiest website you can find is hyunkukle.com. <laughs> My name, H-Y-U-N-K-O-K-L-E.com. That is basically linked with my university profile website. We do have some freely available software packages we developed, like a listening test interface generator tool, a microphone array impulse response library and renderer, some 3D sound rendering plugin, and also an app, a free app called Mars, M-A-R-R-S. You can download it from iPhone, Android app stores. This is a tool that allows you to design your own microphone technique. So you can simulate the localization of each sound source with different types of microphone array and so on. So yeah, all these software packages are available from our app APL website. These are brilliant resources, I'm sure will be useful for a lot of professionals or students who are doing research. For those who didn't catch the URLs, the names, uh, the links, we're going to include everything in the podcast show notes, so you'll be able to find everything. I just wanted to say, Hyunkook, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure, loads of insightful information. I'm going to listen to this recording probably twice again, just to get my head around some of the things you talked about today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts and research. Take care. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell, with guest Dr. Hyung Cook Lee. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy, Abigail Bircham, Oliver Cadell, and Giacomo Corpino, and includes music by Nobs Bergamo. If you enjoyed listening, please go to the Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes, other episodes, and any bonus content. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.